everyone, and welcome to episode 93 of UConn 360. That is the only podcast known to science that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle, coming to you from various Zoom locations across the state of Connecticut. I am your facilitator of sorts. My name is Tom Breen, and joining me, as always, my colleague, Julie Bartuka. Julie, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well, Tom. How are you? I'm doing great. We're recording this on a Friday, and I'm looking forward to the weekend. We've got a fantastic guest we're going to be talking to in just a little bit, but first we want to hit some headlines. What's new, Julie? Yes, UConn John Dempsey Hospital, which is our teaching hospital in Farmington, has been ranked among the world's best hospitals by Newsweek and Statista. The rankings listed the best hospitals in 27 countries using recommendations from medical experts, patient experience surveys, and data for key performance indicators, including quality of treatment and hygiene measures. And John Dempsey is one of four Connecticut hospitals to make that list. So congratulations. Very nice. And I will just put in a plug for a story that ran on UConn today. By the time you listen to this, it'll probably be up there for a few days. But it is a fantastic story by Jacqueline Severance about the Scholars at Risk program, which, I mean, I've been at UConn for 10 years. I didn't even know it existed. But it's a fascinating program where we host scholars from around the world whose work has, has brought them into danger for various reasons. And the story focuses on Marvi Sermed, who is a journalist in Pakistan, who survived like actual assassination attempts because of her reporting on politics and, and, and terrorism. And uh, it's a, a fascinating, fascinating story, a, a great program, and also underscores some of the dangers that scholars face all around the world. And the, a lot of the work that people do is, is in fact dangerous to, to people in power. So definitely check that out today.ucon.edu. It's a great story. And the art is really good. Yes. It's kind of a, we don't often do these kind of long form stories on UConn today. So I think it's kind of a foray into that, which is exciting for us. Yeah, it's very well written. It's like something you'd read on, a, you know, the Atlantic or New Republic. It's, it's fantastic. And, and also fantastic is uh, we have a, a great guest with us today. He's done a lot of work on a lot of different areas. And in particular, we're going to hear about a, a pop-up course that was offered this spring, but we're going to hear a lot about his scholarship and his work. Julie, tell us who we're going to meet. I will. So um, as you mentioned, these pop-up courses in spring 2020, UConn began offering a few different pop-up courses, which were online courses that were open to a broad spectrum. So all faculty, staff, and students on different special topics. So it started with a course on COVID-19 and kind of the impacts of the pandemic and business, economics, health, etc. Um, there was one on anti-Black racism that was offered a couple of times, one on climate change. And right now there's a course called Why the Jews Confronting Anti-Semitism. And today we're going to speak with one of the lead faculty for a course that just wrapped up, which was called Confronting Anti-Asian Racism. Jason Oliver Chang is an Associate Professor of History and Asian American Studies and the Director of the Asian and Asian American Studies Institute. He's also a faculty affiliate to El Instituto and the American Studies and Maritime Studies Departments. Welcome, Jason, to UConn 360. Hi, Julie. Tom, thank you so much for the invitation. It's great to be with you. Absolutely. And I know Jason because we worked together on a really fun project a couple of years ago, which had an exhibit in the School of Nursing, right? About uh, Filipino nurses. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was really fun. We had a graphic designer working on that and it was really fun to work with Jason. So once I saw that he was the head of this, I thought he'd be a great guest. So of course, this uh, this topic is, is pretty heavy that this course was built around. And um, unfortunately, it's nothing new in the U.S., but like so many of the issues that COVID-19 has really shown a spotlight on, you know, this this has kind of been front of mind for a lot of people since the outbreak was kind of blamed on China. And as we know, all of the terrible rhetoric that has been surrounding that 
So there was also a nearly 150% increase in hate crimes against Asian Americans in 2020, which is just a stunning statistic. So I guess I'm just going to start by asking, as you come off this course, what do you want our listeners to know about this current surge in anti-Asian sentiment? Thank you for the question and, and teeing it up in that, in that fashion, because, you know, what I think is significant is that when we think of the current situation as, you know, unprecedented or inconceivable. It kind of disavows the past experiences. And, you know, Asian Americans are a diverse crowd. So if right now we have attention on the ways that East Asian Americans, say Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans, Korean Americans, are being racialized as, you know, kind of yellow peril and being targeted for for a number of kinds of violence and harassment and discrimination. We rewind just 20 years ago and South Asians and and Arab Americans were being targeted as retribution for 9-11, which they had absolutely no part in, right? So when we look at kind of the genealogy of this violence over time, we see it's actually consistent throughout and deeply within uh, U.S. culture. I think what is remarkable about the last several years is that many Asian Americans are invisible until scapegoated. And so this generation now is experiencing this kind of periodic rise in antagonism, hostility, and and violence, uh, which underscores a really deep-seated tradition of white supremacist violence that is targeted for different groups at different points in time. Now, what we've seen is that the model minority kind of veneer that people often associate with Asian Americans crumbled so quickly in the face of of COVID, in the face of the rise of a white supremacist right wing in the country, and that that was mainstreamed. And I think that is, that kind of allowed for you know, thoughts lead to words, words lead to action, right? And that this is an expression of something that has been boiling and and churning and developing over the last decade, right? So when the first reports of COVID were coming out of China in December of 19, I started keeping track of things. And I sent out, you know, on social media, I sent a a call for help, like, help me document. This is a crowdsourcing project. How can we? And I was like, this is, this is going to come back to bite us. This, Mm -hmm. you know, this is something given the context, right? The end of the Trump administration, the ramp up of the election cycle. I saw the dominoes kind of falling. And through that crowdsourcing work, we created a syllabus for how to think about the history and also ways that we can develop a more kind of nuanced response instead of just saying, you know, this is wrong and racist, (laughs) but also how do we increase the political power of Asian Americans to stand up for themselves in these spaces? Uh, And so that's turned me to education. It's turned me to public service. And the the pop-up course is just one more expression of this effort to to intervene in in culture through education. One of the things about the pop-up courses that I think are so interesting is that they're able to respond to like an urgent need or an urgent question 
but they still have the same depth and, and rigor that people expect from a high-level academic class. I imagine that's not easy to pull off. What, what goes into to making a class like this? Yeah, you nailed it on the head. This is, even though it, it, it is, I think, as you say, a kind of first response of an educational institution to address the needs of the present, it really is teamwork. Uh, that makes it happen. My associate director at the Institute, Nare Kim, uh, Professor Nare Kim, was instrumental as a co-lead in this. And we assembled a team of faculty and staff, too, from the Asian American Cultural Center to, to be responsible for different modules. And it's, you know, it's seven weeks, seven modules. And it's an, an intellectual and a political exercise to think about how to break up this idea into seven weeks of study. We want it to be rigorous, but we don't want it to be overwhelming that students don't finish the class, right? So I have worked with CEDL, the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning, for many years now doing online classes and work with pedagogy and different modes. And so I really love the team there. Uh, and they were also instrumental in helping to execute the vision that we had for the course. The faculty were really excited to be able to reach out to so many new students and deliver these kind of core lessons within Asian American studies. And the CEDL team was just brilliant in helping to shape the delivery of the video elements combined with multimedia. I mean, we had, we had archival video footage, primary documents photos, artwork, just to be able to bring all of those different pieces together in a digital platform in such a brilliant way was great. They also had this graphic designer that helped us generate the logo for the course, which was a really nice process to go through with them. And I imagine in seven weeks, you're really just scratching the surface, but to give everybody kind of that base level of understanding that goes through it is, is extremely valuable anyway. Yeah, and we decided, I set up the skeleton of the course to not just focus on the acts of violence, right? That's why we labeled it confronting anti-Asian racism, mm -hmm. that each module has a unit that's about activism, that's about how do you dismantle this? How have people tackled this problem in the past? What does that look like, right? So each one is kind of a different facet of action that can be taken. Some of them, I think, might be surprising to some folks in the sense that Asian Americans have been abolitionists, that the abolitionist fight is also a part of dismantling discrimination and violence from the immigration system, right? In another module, we explore the view of Asian Americans as settlers in the U.S. as a settler colony. So how do you reconcile being a racialized other in a settler colony? Drawing those solidarities with indigenous people is also a way of expressing this other kind of citizenship that recognizes the political position within the nation. And so, so there are a, a lot of different ways that Asian American activism can, can be a part of dismantling, you know, not only anti-Asian racism, but all these other forms of power that are, you know, they're interconnected, right? 
I was, I was actually going to just ask you, you know, you mentioned that you started keeping track of these things and you thought, okay, I can attack this from an education standpoint as an academic or researcher and an educator. And we have students who were involved in the, I am not a virus campaign that kind of was a response to all of the rhetoric after COVID-19 started. So what can people do? I know we all feel kind of helpless sometimes when we see these videos or hear about the news, like the Atlanta shootings from a couple of years ago. What can people do in their everyday lives to, to combat this? One thing is to get involved in public institutions, whether that's the public school system, get involved at your library, get involved in your organizations that, that you work in. And and to leverage that space, right? To bring these topics to bear. You know, one of the things that happened as a, as a result of this work, and you mentioned I am not a virus, Mike Keough is the founder of that. Mike Keough, myself, Kate Lee, who's a part of the Asian American Education Project, and Jeff Gu, um, was a student at NYU, but a, a Connecticut resident. We came together to found Make Us Visible Connecticut, and that's a grassroots organization that's advocated for education reform. And last legislative session, we got language passed, including like Native studies, LGBTQIA studies, climate change, financial literacy, you know, it was oh, wow, a lot of great. really great material, things that need to be in the schools. And now what we've seen is that we have an opportunity now in this legislative session to get Asian American and Pacific Islander studies integrated for general education statutes, which would mean any change to the curriculum going forward would include them. And Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders are the only group not included in, in general education statutes now. Wow. So, you know, one of the ways that people can help is to see these education reforms through, you know, contact your legislators, contact your legislative delegation for where you are and tell them that this is an important means for building, you know, greater awareness and empathy, and that these are, these are mechanisms that make communities safer. Let me put it this way. I guess because of this work, I've been recognized by the governor to serve on the, the state's hate crimes advisory council. And, you know, what is important about that to me is that the council is very much organized around enforcement through policing. And I'm co-chairing the community awareness subcommittee. And really, we're more focused on prevention there. The things that we've identified are school-based interventions, as well as community-based interventions. And I find those to be really fascinating. One of the things that makes communities safer is if they're less vulnerable, if they're visible, right? Mm -hmm. And so that participation, that invitation into the public space offers a degree of protection because of the visibility. And so I think more work that can support those kinds of projects, I think are going to go a long way. I was struck too, when you mentioned that you kind of crowdsourced these reports at the start, when we started giving these reports about COVID cases, it, it, the days are long gone when we'd have to sort of wait for things to like get to a newspaper before we could realize that there was a, as a, as a scholar who's engaged with the world, what, what does your information diet look like? Like, how do you, what are your sources that you keep on top of to, to stay abreast of what's going on? Mm, yeah, that's a really great question. It's a little bit of, it's probably a lot of social media. I, I kind of use my Twitter account as a kind of news aggregator. I think a lot a of way. us do. Yeah, 
Yeah. And I'm much more of a spectator on Twitter. And then I also turn to, you know, my, my other colleagues and my other partners in public service. So like I sit on the Board of Education in West Hartford and, you know, being able to lean on other professionals in my field, in the field of education, other, say, lobbyists who are working on education reform in the state, just to ask them, what's news to you? So like last week was an education hearing on the legislature, and that lit up a whole firestorm of communication about the kinds of testimony that we were hearing, but then also the raised bills that the committee was considering that just really generated a lot of new ideas and new possibilities because of, say, the the, the court's, you know, settlement on Chef versus O'Neill or possibly a new formula for calculating school funding. There were just a number of really big issues at hand and figuring out what's important to other people helps to kind of situate my own knowledge to see how do I understand everything is set in relation to to, to my peers and to other folks who are, who are working on these issues. There's a digital part, but then there's also a kind of network part too. Shifting back to the course for just a second, you talked about how you, how you kind of tried to always talk about the activism piece, but you also focused on, I think it said resilience, creativity, and strength of Asian Americans as they contend with stereotypes and hate. What are some of the, some of the examples of that that you really think people should know? These are in some ways, a, a kind of archive of survival, you know, by looking at the ways that the Asian American communities have invented ways of uh, still creating joy and connection, despite, say, you know, the segregation of Chinatowns, right, or immigration detention, right? So for instance, at Angel Island in California, which is kind of the Ellis Island of the West Coast, that was an immigration detention center, really. And it was the, the immigration station which kept many Asian Americans when they were coming to the United States during the exclusion era, which began in 1882. Well, some say a little bit earlier, but the 1882 is the Chinese Exclusion Act that created those kinds of enforceable mechanisms of detention until the early 20th century. So one of the things that we see at Angel Island, though, are these poems that are carved into the walls, mm. right? And these poems are just heartbreaking, but also hopeful, uh, talking about, you know, like when they get out, who are they going to connect with? Like, is it, I can't wait to get back home, or they thought America would be a different place. And these are all stories from the heart. And I think these kinds of expressions and by paying attention to Asian American culture, we see that there are all these different ways of retelling one's own story. And that it's not just a simple immigrant ergo citizen narrative arc that people go through. And I think that's a typical kind of American genre of storytelling, right? But Asian American culture has all these other kinds of stories that don't necessarily end with that belonging and citizenship and integration. There are many other ways in which Asian Americans struggle for peace, justice, and liberation. So one of the things that I've used in my course are these tarot cards that are from the Asian American Literary Review. They created an incredible special issue called Open in Emergency, and it's an issue that is devoted to mental health for basically coming out of the Asian American experience. 
this is really an important intervention in the racialization of Asian Americans because many times the stereotype of model minority assumes that there are no problems, mm-hmm. right? There's no fuss or that you kind of keep your head down and do your job and there's no fuss. And that creates so much internal pressure to perform to that level as a means of achieving integration or achieving, you know, some measure of respectability in the eyes of, of strangers. So what's really fun about these cards, these tarot cards is um, there's poems written in the narrative of the tarot tradition, but the cards are named like the shopkeeper, the refugee, uh, the mother, patient, right? There are these themes within Asian American studies that animate these things and then kind of meditate on those particular conditions, asking people to think about their own lives in ways that might open up a truth that the world has never asked them to consider that for themselves. You mentioned that the idea of Asian America is is a very diverse concept. What are some of the ways that that idea has changed, the way that people think about it has changed since you've been a scholar? And you think it's changed in the last two years because of experiences since the pandemic? So Asian America is is really a, a question rather than a population. I think the question is often defined by American power in the sense that the push and pull forces that shape who comes to the United States are often, you know, there's conflict and war, colonization and imperialism. These are all factors that generate migrants, that generate these movements of people. And that in some ways, the catalog of diversity among Asian Americans is also an accounting of all of these different push and pull forces that have shaped migration for the last 200 years. One thing that has really become clear to me in the last couple of years, something that I didn't really understand as much, perhaps because of being a historian and looking at the past and trying to understand, say, what did it mean to create the term Asian American in the 1960s and 70s that where it didn't exist before. People had hyphenated identities, but were Japanese American, right? Or Chinese American. Asian American really wasn't a thing until people created a political identity around it that had some kind of constellation of relationship to other Asian Americans to other racial groups and those forces which shaped their lives, whether it's, you know, Orientalism at home and popular culture, discrimination, or whether it's being displaced from war, um, that those were all kinds of experiences that many different ethnic groups began to see like, oh, you, you, had, you had that same experience? Like, mm. this is like my story, right? And so one thing that came into focus for me, I think because of being more involved in like public service and being engaged in contemporary conversations about education reform and activism is that each generation redefines what Asian America is. And I think it's in part about creating the conditions for them to have that conversation. Sometimes it happens out of crisis. And I think that produces a certain kind of urgency. But on the other hand, by 
this recent push for K through 12 education, hopefully a younger generation begins to ask that question earlier in life and maybe has different goals because of that and hopefully has maybe a more sustained longer impact over the long term because it's not coming out of crisis, but out of public education, right? That they're given access to those memories, to those concepts that there are challenges and that they can meet them and that they're not alone, right? I had a student say something that really made sense to me there. I was asked, I think it was a high school student about what they were doing in in school. They said, the schools only teach important things. And to me, I was like, that's, that's so insightful because if you're not in the curriculum, what does that say about you? What message does that send? Yeah. I wanted to wrap up by kind of reflecting on Yukon specifically. So we had a series that we called it Brave Space and we invited different people of different backgrounds to talk kind of, we hope honestly about what society and Yukon could do better when it came to diversity, equity, and inclusion issues. I wanted to ask you one of the questions we always ended those with, and that's, what is UConn doing well? And we talked about the pop-up courses. That's a great thing. I'm sure there are other things. What is UConn doing well when it comes to DEI, and what do we really need to do better? I really want to thank the provost's office and all the players who make those pop-up courses work. 1,700 students, more than 1,700 students took that course. That's amazing. And many of them, for the first time, were exposed to stories and histories that reflected their own stories. The kinds of responses from students were really heartbreaking in the sense that they would say things like, this is the first course I've ever taken that I feel seen. This is a really important step forward, right? On the other hand, I think one thing that can, on this vein of education and what the Asian and Asian American Studies Institute can contribute, there's clearly a need for this. There's clearly a need. And I think our advising networks, our counseling system can be more tuned in to the ways that coursework can meet these kinds of emotional, personal needs that are more fulfilling in a sense, in a way that other coursework may help you find a passion, but it may not connect you to the past or or explain your personal experience in a way that validates your existence in the world. So one of the things that I I loved about the work that Julie, you and I did with the (laughs) the nursing exhibit uh, was showing nursing students that there is a long tradition of Filipino participation I spoke with several nursing students at the time when we first made the exhibit and they said, oh yeah, my mom's a nurse or my aunt's a nurse. And, And it validated this career trajectory within their families. The argument I made too is that Asian American studies will make you a better nurse. It'll make you a better caretaker. You take African American studies, Latinx studies, women, gender, sexuality, it will make you a better caregiver because you'll understand the political, social, historical context of Mm -hmm. the care. And I think that's like so important, especially now when we think about recovery out of the pandemic, 
We think about all the serious mental health issues that are sustained with us and this need for economic transformation. You know, I view these as a way for the university to recognize the strength of these fields of study and help them to contribute to these other areas where we know it can have an impact in education, healthcare, and the arts. I hope it's a trend that we keep offering these things to everybody and, and making them. I know so there's movements to make some of this part of the gen ed requirements. And that's just really important to, to expose as many people as possible to, to this history and this context. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this has been fantastic. Is there anything you would like to plug or let people know about before we go? Seedle is proposing to offer the course again next academic year. The week after spring break, we have our annual Joshi lecture in India studies. And this time it will be with the Benton Women's Gender Sexuality Studies, as well as the Art and Art History Department. And this year's speaker is David Santon and will be speaking on Mithilia Art, the Vital Tradition, which is a part of a curated collection of indigenous art from South Asia put together by Catherine Myers, professor of painting at University of Connecticut. And so this is an incredible curated exhibit and we're gonna have this wonderful lecture on March 23rd from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Zoom. Take a look at our Twitter account. It's at Yukon A-A-A-S-I. That's great. Our episode, this will not air until the 23rd, but oh. it comes out at 8 a.m. So hopefully people hear it and then we can okay, retweet cool. you. Is the exhibit going to be up for a while? March 24th through July 31st. Oh, good. So it'll be up. Yeah. Great. Okay. So go check out that exhibit. Where is the exhibit hosted? It's at the Benton. At the Benton. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you, Jason. This was a fascinating conversation and good to see you again after two plus years. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, that was fantastic. Thanks again to Professor Chang. Now we turn briefly to Tom's history sidewalk. Tom's Hairbrush, says, no. <laughs> it's something. It's a smaller piece of ground than a corner, but we don't quite have a name. If you do have a name for it, put it on a postcard, send it to us <laughs> at UConn. And just write UConn on the Yeah, just send it to UConn. They'll section. know they'll know where it goes. They'll know. They'll and, know. Uh, if you win, we will send you something, a button. I don't know. I want to talk we have, about... We have stickers. We do have stickers. We'll send you a sticker. Okay. You want to talk about... Briefly, I want to talk about the first time someone who served as the head of a foreign country came to UConn. Hmm. Because recently, last October, Joe Biden came to UConn. It was the, the mm -hmm. second time a sitting U.S. president had been to UConn. But we never had a foreign head of state until 1996 when Mikhail Gorbachev came to UConn. He was not currently the head of state of Russia, but he had served as head of state of the Soviet Union, I should say. Mm -hmm. And this is a very topical reference because of what's yes, happening in the world right now. And of course, he was the Soviet leader who presided over Glasnost and Perestroika and, and ultimately the dismantling of the Soviet Union. He came to speak at the Dodd Center in 1996. And in his speech, he called on then uh, Russian president Boris Yeltsin to resign, saying that Yeltsin was interfering with the development of a healthy democracy. <laughs> and if that they didn't uh, get a, a true multi-party democracy, that Yeltsin would be followed by a, an even more autocratic leader. Mm. And as we know, that did not happen. Everything's fine. Uh, but yeah, that was a bit of a, a prescient view into the future by Mikhail Gorbachev. 
And then since then, we've been visited by other former heads of, of state and foreign countries, including Bertie Ahern, who is the Irish Taoiseach. That's right. I pronounce it correctly. Taoiseach. Of course you um, did. He was also invited by the Dodd Center. And I believe Oscar Arias, the former head of state of Costa Rica, has also visited UConn. Wow. Costa Rica is a really cool place. I went there on my honeymoon. Oh, did you? I, no I did. I like, the, I like the way they they live their lives. It's very sustainable and eco Yeah, I've heard great things about it. Oh, it's absolutely gorgeous. I spent three hours in a van to get to the hotel. But other than that, it was fantastic. <laughs> I've been to Ireland, but but never Russia. So that's two of three for us. I have also been to Ireland, but never Russia. I would like to go someday. To Russia? Not now. Not now. No. No. Um, And these are all Dodd centers. So these are all human rights speeches. Yes, they would come and give a speech. And Bertie Ahern is actually a a Dodd Prize winner. Oh, cool. Uh, One for his work, uh, along with, I think, Tony Blair, uh, for their work in promoting peace in the north of Ireland. I hope you enjoyed this very very brief foray into history. But yeah, Mikhail Gorbachev and uh, Bertie Ahern. And uh, the ultimate warrior also spoke here. I guess he's the head of a state of some kind. It was actually kind of a disastrous speech to the ultimate warrior. He, uh, Who's the ultimate warrior? He's a pro wrestler in the 80s. Of course he's a pro wrestler. And uh, he became, he actually legally changed his name to warrior. Wait, why was this? Was there a Twitter thing about him recently? Well, he or passed away you, a few years ago. Did um, you tweet something about him recently? Maybe. he he The speech he gave here was in the early 2000s. And um, there's footage of it on YouTube. You can see it. And like, he, he gets into like shouting matches with the students. Why was he invited? He was invited by, I think, the Yukon Republicans because after wrestling, he became kind of a conservative activist. Gotcha. And they did not realize what he was going to say. And he, no, no. he, he kind of went on like a homophobic tirade, but it like really weird, like it was kind of hard to know what he was talking about at first. And then when the students realized, Again, they were, you know, it was like wrestling fans and student Republicans. Yeah. They start yelling at him. Oh boy. And, uh, and he just starts yelling back at them. It's, it's, yeah, if you want to watch, it's uh, excruciating to watch. Sounds like a fun time. Yeah. I'm going to pass. Didn't happen with Mikhail Gorbachev. (laughs) Thank thank goodness. (laughs) But Mikhail, like the ultimate warrior, Mikhail Gorbachev was wearing the face paint as a pro wrestler. So there you go. (laughs) On that note, let's wrap it up. On that note, thanks for listening. Bus is Uh, pulling away. Bus is pulling, yeah, the bus is pulling. We got to catch the bus. Tom's history bus. I don't know. Have a good, good time, everybody. (laughs) And we'll see you in two weeks. (laughs) Oh, 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 oh,